Exiles in Babylon 2024. That's right, folks. We're doing it again. Our third annual Exiles in Babylon conference will be held on April 18th through the 20th, uh, 2024, here in Boise, Idaho. And this one is going to be an absolute barn burner, as we say here in Idaho. The topics we're going to discuss are uh, deconstruction and the church. And we're going to actually hear from people who have deconstructed and others who maybe should have deconstructed but didn't. We're also going to discuss women, power, and abuse in the church, which is obviously a huge issue that we absolutely need to discuss. Um, we're going to talk about faith and sexuality, specifically how can churches become places where uh, LGBTQ or same-sex attracted Christians can flourish within a traditional sexual ethic. Lastly, we're going to discuss, can't believe we're doing this one, we're going to discuss politics. That's right. Politics and the church where we're going to have uh, various speakers present. We're going to have a right-leaning Christian, a left-leaning Christian, and a, I don't know, what do you call them, a nonpartisan or Anabaptist-ish Christian share their perspectives, um, share their perspective, and we're going to put them all in conversation with each other. And of course, we're going to have Evan Wickham and Tanika Wyatt uh, leading us in worship throughout the weekend. I really, really, really want to mix it up this year. We're going to hear from leading thinkers in each of these areas. We're going to we're going to be having different viewpoints in conversation with each other. It's going to be honest. It's going to be raw, and you're not going to want to miss out. I really think this one's going to fill up quickly. So if you want to attend in person, Boise, Idaho, April. 18th through the 20th. Register very, very soon. Just go to theologyintheraw.com. That's theologyintheraw.com. I really hope to see you there. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Drew Johnson, who is a visiting uh, associate professor at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Um, he is the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought and the host of the Biblical Mind podcast and co-host of the On Script podcast. He had he got his uh, PhD uh, from St. Andrews University in Scotland. Before all of this, he was a high school dropout skinhead, punk rock drummer, and combat veteran, um, IT supervisor and pastor. So anyway, interesting character. I will say, uh, let me just warn you up front, our conversation goes all over the map. Um, in fact, I'm recording this intro after our conversation, but before I title this episode. So I don't even know how I'm going to title this episode because we... We um, open up many doors of thought and chase shiny objects within those doors. Uh, you'll kind of see what I mean once you listen to the episode. We begin, I would say the first like 20 minutes is does get pretty heavy on a philosophical level. So those of you who are philosophically wired, you, you're going to love it. If you're not that way, you might feel lost. Um, but we come... We 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 do uh, lower the plane a little bit and 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 camp out on some really um, interesting uh, aspects of biblical law, like like Old Testament law of, of patriarchy versus heterarchy. We tease out what that means, and we um, there's a lot more kind of more concrete stuff that if you're not philosoph philosophically minded, you'll definitely uh, love to engage with um, some some things that might throw you for a loop, some controversial ideas, and uh, if you have any. Um, questions or problems with this podcast, please email Drew Johnson. <laughs> so yeah, uh, this, this is a fun one, folks. Get ready for uh, get ready for a ride. So please welcome to the show, the one and only Dr. Drew Johnson. Drew, thanks so much for tuning into the show, a fellow podcaster. My pleasure. I love doing podcasts. It might be a uh, 
Uh, do you like being on this end of things, or do you like being on the other no, on, on this side of things? I, I love being on the other side. Okay. Of <laughs> so, yeah. I kind of maybe because I'm so used to that side, I actually enjoy being on the other side. So if you well, want, yeah, we you. can. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I'll have you on. I'm always looking for uh, fresh meat too. So. So uh, tell us who you are. Uh, I, you've had a very interesting journey. I would encourage people to go on your website and <laughs> read um, your autobiography. It is definitely not very vanilla. So um, can we start with your uh, skinhead punk rock musician days? Is that a good place yeah, to start? I should, I should always qualify. I was not a neo-Nazi skinhead. Um, my my okay. stepfather was African-American from the South, raised under Jim Crow. My sister is, is black, like... Uh, I was a non, not involved in racist activities, which most skinheads in the eighties and nineties were not so you, racist. You just had a shaved head. That was, that was it. Well, real, what they say, real skinheads were not the racist. The neo-Nazis adopted, I mean, early skinhead movements were actually out of Jamaican and West Indies, uh, mods in, in, in England. So most of them were black. Um, so if you ever wonder why skinheads are associated with ska music and reggae, it's because of the early skinhead movement in England. So when that movement came over to the United States, this this got way out of bounds. By no, the way. this is fascinating. <laughs> right. So my truncated understanding of the movement is when it came over to the United States, 69, early 70s, um, the Klan and White Aaron Resistance, they liked the look. They liked the kind of hooliganism that went with it because, you know, it is kind of like a brotherhood hooligan movement. Uh, and so they appropriated it for some of their youth, their their youth gang look or whatever. And, you know, I was I was a skinhead in Oklahoma in the 80s, you know, and so there were certainly neo-Nazi skinheads around and there were certainly Klansmen. Yeah, I mean, we would have Klan people walk up to us in the mall and, and you find out because they would I, I found out later they have certain identifiers that, you know, tell you they're in the Klan or whatever. But um, yeah, so you you realize like these people are just out there circulating. Um, but the skinheads were kind of the uh, they drew all the heat. Uh, they were out there, you know, loud and proud and noisy and you know making a ruckus. The clan members are actually the scary ones because those are just the normal looking white dudes that you would never be able to pick out of a lineup. So okay, interesting. Yeah. So how did you go from that world? Um, to pursuing theological education, were you always like a, a, a a Christian, a thoughtful person, no. a student, or is that something you kind of <laughs> fell into? <laughs> well, I've never been a thoughtful person. I'm looking forward to entering that phase of life. Um, maybe when I turn 50. No, I wasn't. I, when I was young, I was raising my mom and dad were married, uh, very Pentecostal, uh, like old school Pentecostal Christians. And then they got divorced and uh, I was stay with my mom and my mom kind of went off in a new age. She kind of quit parenting when I was about nine years old oh, wow. and uh, my dad moved to another state. So I still had a relationship with him, but he wasn't there in my daily life. I had some good interactions with a few Christian people that like some solid men who saw me struggling. They were Christians and they stepped in and like were a good presence, but I didn't buy any of it. I didn't trust anybody. You know, I was, I was scarred or as my students would say, butt hurt. By everything. And Oklahoma, if you don't know, Oklahoma has a very particular brand, Tulsa of Christianity, Oral Roberts University, Rainbow oh, Bible yeah. College. You know, there's some some cutting edge Christianity. I don't know what you would call it there. How would you, how, how would you describe the unique brand of Christianity there? Well, now I yeah, that's a good question. Because Oral, like, Oral Roberts is kind of its own thing, isn't it? I it mean, is. It's, its, own, it's, it's part of the Pentecostal movement, and certainly he's part of that revivalist Pentecostal movement. But they were early adopters of the kind of the radio and uh, television world. And I mean, if if you should Google image search Oral Roberts University campus, if you've never been there, like it's worth looking at the architecture. 
it is wild. It's like 2001 Stanley Kubrick meets Art Deco. They have a prayer tower, which is also the radio station. They have a 62-story skyscraper that was a hospital. Oh, wow. uh, like it's yeah, it's it's a crazy place. So there there is just this um, almost like a self-starter non-denominational brand of Christianity. I, I'm sure it's changed. I mean, this was 30 years ago. Um, but um, and then you had like the main lines, what, uh, the Methodist, uh, the Eighth Baptist Church, which is a beautiful Art Deco church in downtown Tulsa. Uh, Presbyterians have a small footprint there. So it's it's kind of, you know, Tulsa used to be the land of billionaires. It's before Saudi Arabian oil was discovered uh, in 1917, 1916. Again, this has gone in a weird direction. Uh, <laughs> that, that's where a lot of billionaires in the United States lived. And so they Frank Lloyd Wright's only skyscraper is in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, a 13-story skyscraper, tall building. So there's a lot of mishmash in that part of the in that part of the Oklahoma. It's a very very bizarre that. place. So my experience of Christianity was was kids at my high school who were kind of floating in and out of all of those youth groups and uh, youth movements with all kinds of you know. So it's kind of southern. It's kind of not. But none of it made me want to be a Christian. Like I just I just say that very clearly. I was like I wanted to get girls. I was in a punk band. Like I wanted to go out and get in fights, get drunk, uh, hang out with girls. Like that was, I was was pretty singularly motivated. Uh, and then I, (laughs) I worked at a pub through high school, me and two of my skinhead buddies worked in a pub in the kitchen. And, um, and I worked until like, you know, until the, until the bar closed every night uh, that I worked. And so, uh, I did not do well showing up at school the next morning, you know, after working till one in the morning at the bar and, so yeah, I eventually failed out of high school after three freshman years, three solid freshman attempts. Wow. Um, and what didn't take school seriously, didn't take much of anything seriously. And then eventually after dropping out of school, I moved up with my dad in St. Louis, Missouri. And he's like, Hey, you can live in my little house, his little 700 square foot house. He was living in with his wife and his new family. He's like, but you got to go to church. You got to get a job. You got to pay rent. You got to step up here, you know? So I did. Um, and, uh, and I went to that crazy charismatic church where they played REO Speedwagon worship songs and <laughs> Jehovah Jireh and all that stuff. Um, he's like, you don't have to agree with anything, but you have to go and sit, you know, just go sit there. And so I got to know, again, another guy there at that church. And he took me seriously, befriended me, like took all my silly, silly questions very seriously. Actually, I have in my new book on Darwinism, I have a short story about this guy, how he really took me seriously, even though I was being completely ridiculous. Uh, and uh, he's the one who actually eventually kind of helped me understand that God had changed me from the inside out and I'd become a Christian. Uh, I'd say, you say he led me to Christ or whatever, yeah. which he did. He coached me into it. But he, I think he would also say, no, like God changed me. Uh, he helped me understand what happened to me. So, And then that led you, when did you start pursuing theological education? Like pretty shortly um, after? I, no, no, I, I was in the military for seven years, um, deploying regularly down in South America to do counter narcotics work and going to college at the same time. Um, so uh, I finished college, uh, got married within a few weeks of finishing college. And then um, I was planning on doing research psychology. That was my, my love, my interest, you know, psychology, I understood it. I had you know, me and my wife both came from broken families. So like psychology did a lot of work for me just on the ground. And, um, and then that same guy who, uh, who coached me in my Christianity, 
uh, he had, we sat down and he's like, I think you should go to seminary. Like, and I was like, what are the, what's a seminary? What do they teach there? And so he, uh, he told me and, uh, and I was like, oh, that actually sounds really interesting. And, uh, I visited Covenant Seminary cause it was in St. Louis. It was, you know, and, uh, and I withdrew all my PhD applications and went to Covenant the next semester and never looked back. And then I loved, you know, I did four years at Covenant and it, like I was sad when the four years were over. Um, and so he, uh, so then I thought about doing a PhD and my mentor at Covenant Seminary said, nah, Drew, you're asking all the wrong questions. Go work in the church for five years. Uh, and they'll, they'll reshape your questions. And, um, so I ended up being a pastor for about eight years actually, before I went and did a PhD at St. Andrews. So what, how old were you when you did your PhD then? My mid thirties, 34, 35, had four small children. Unlike oh, wow. everybody else, I brought all my children with me rather than having them for free in the UK. I had a couple uh, free kids in the UK. <laughs> yeah. No, all mine were in elementary school there. Oh, um, wow. And yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I also, when I was a pastor, I, it's like within three weeks of graduating from seminary, I had more questions. So I enrolled in a, in a philosophy master's program at University of Missouri oh. and did that. And then actually te- I taught there as well, philosophy of religion for a few years. Um, and then kind of that helped me realize philosophy is a good tool, but it wasn't what it really wanted. I wanted to continue working at, um, and I told us a a story in this biblical philosophy book about reasons why, um, Christian philosophy didn't seem completely receptive to the kind of things I wanted to do with scripture as well. So you, yeah, you have, I mean, if you look, I, you know, I was just looking through your CV, your, your, I guess people here call it like resumes. Resumes, yeah. Resume. <laughs> so weird. Like when you when you study in the UK, you pick up certain lingo and you don't realize, you know. Um, yeah, you know. I, I told someone here, I was like, oh, I was an external examiner for Aviva, you know, last week. And they're just like, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> Do you have rubber gloves on? Or- <laughs> <laughs> um, so you wrote a book, Biblical Philosophy. The subtitle is A Hebraic Approach to the Old and New Testaments. Well, actually, first of all, let me back up. You, you, you are one of the few people I know that are well. Not I guess there's there's more of you out there, but like that are really multidisciplinary. Like you know, like I study New Testament. Like that's that's my thing. But like you know, you you have this combination of how would you describe it? I mean, like history, biblical theology, <laughs> philosophy. Theology, like what would your main areas of expertise? Expertise. I don't do, have any blend- I mean, this is I tell people like when with students, I'm like. Listen, I know people say that, you know, I, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I, I, I really hide in the cracks like a cockroach so that nobody can catch on to me. I just need to know slightly more. No, I, I am very interested in philosophical questions. I think when I read, I, you know, one of the main advantages of not being really raised in Christian culture was I, I didn't speak uh, Christianese. I didn't speak Christian cliche. I didn't understand a lot of that language. When I went to seminary, I kind of had to learn that language. But and I but I also remember reading the Bible for the very first time when I was twenty, and I remember my emotional reactions to it. I remember being wow. very confused by the Gospels. I remember being very confused by Genesis, Exodus, you know. So I think it gives me um, uh, just different questions that I bring to the text, and and also as I you know I went to seminary and then I just studied philosophy afterwards, not really having a plan. But what I realized coming into philosophy with good exegetical tools. I was like, wait, you're not asking any questions that are radically different than anything I was learning over in seminary, right? Um, 
And the Greeks don't really have any interesting answers. In fact, we don't believe any of the Greek answers are correct. We think they're basically wrong about everything. Math, science, morality, everything. We basically think that they're wrong. We sometimes will go like, well, you know, the Stoics have some aspects and Aristotle's ethics, you know, there's some helpful things. I'm like, yeah, but nobody is actually preaching Aristotle qua Aristotle. Noah's preaching, nobody's preaching Stoic, Stoicism's qua Stoicism, right? Um, and certainly we don't believe in their like mathematical ideas. We don't believe in their science, their view of science. It's all like, it's all been shown to be incorrect, right? Wait, ma- math? I thought, I mean, I know nothing about anything you're talking about really, but it-, it Oh, I don't I thought, either. <laughs> I, I, I thought, wait, I thought- I thought like Arist- like mathematics like that weren't they kind of the fathers of mathematics and that we would what well, what don't we believe about their ma- well you know if you want to take and I and maybe I'm thinking meta mathematics and philosophy of mathematics okay. more than mathematical like devices themselves but okay. but even mathematical devices like the idea that the circle is the theologically uh, everything is theologically derivative from circularity right hmm. that's a strong principle in Aristotle that um, Galileo had on, held on to, which is why he didn't believe in elliptical orbits, right? Because he was an Aristotelian to the to the death. Kepler believed in elliptical orbits, and he showed Galileo, like, oh, hey, uh, I have calculations that make more sense of the sky hmm. because I'm going to put these in ellipses. But he believed those because he was a Neoplatonist and believed in ratios, where the perfect div- divine form of God's, you know, of the of whatever divinity is that flows through the logos. So, um, and things like zero, right? Zero in mathematics. Uh, if you want to do engineering today, you need to use zero as a placeholder to do lots of fancy mathematics. Well, zero was an impossibility in the West because it was a Greek theological problem. You can't have an infinite, unchanging form of zeroness in the heavens. You can't have an cha- unchanging form of nothing, right? So th- that's not a mathematical problem. That's a theological problem inherited from the Greeks that eventually mathematicians had to shake off. They also had to shake off, like scientists had to shake off conceptual beliefs like none of this is real. All of this is deceptive. Your sensories are, everything that you know and see is deceptive, uh, which you can get that in the Brahminist tradition. You can get that in the the, the Greco-Roman tradition as well, African traditions as well. And from the Matrix. It varies. Yeah. Huh? And from the Matrix, right? <laughs> and from the Matrix, yeah. That whole, so science can't proceed from a view of reality that starts out with Everything is deceptive or false, ultimately. Um, and the way to understand this world is to, to understand that none of this is real or that me and this computer and you are all one thing and the same thing. And until you understand that, you understand nothing, right? So you see the, the proceeding of science through history is a lot of overcoming of those kind of largely Hellenistic ideas, not entirely Greek ideas, but many of them were Hellenistic ideas and mathematics as well. Um, from Cantorian infinities to to zero to like the idea that there's not one mathematic system that actually maps onto reality, right? That's why we call it mathematics, or in the in the UK they call it maths, uh, and not math, uh, because there isn't one mathematic system that actually explains reality, uh, and different mathematic systems conflict with how they explain the same phenomenon. So that idea of a unified a uh, set of mathematical ideas that comes from certain divine realities like circularity or uh, the, the supremacy of the logos or whatever, whatever, wherever you locate the anchor that, that everything else hangs off of. Um, we've systematically moved away from that. And I think this kind of gets into what I do in the book is say, well, what did we, where do we end up? Right. What, mm-hmm. what's the system, you know, did, did we end up looking more like a Chinese system of thought or an African uh, system of thought? And, it's like, no, we actually ended up looking very much like what the Hebrew Bible thinks about reality mm. and how the 
Hebrew Bible thinks about testing reality and knowing reality. Um, and so I'd say everything from our morality, our concept of the human person, our concept of politics, that all humans are created equal. Josh Berman has a great book on this. Um, at, that really, at the end of the day, our concepts of science um, and some of the concepts of math, those ultimately all work together from a, a uniquely Hebraic worldview uh, yeah. and an intellectual world that they developed. Even if you don't even think that the God they're worshiping is real, mm-hmm. um, they are singularly responsible for this intellectual world that they developed that we essentially live into today. And that's that's not my opinion only. That's University of Chicago, the Orientalist of the last century, were saying the exact same thing back in the 1940s. So you're... In- I hope I'm asking the right questions because I, I want you to tease out more. What 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 is it? What is a Hebraic approach to the Old and New Testament? I'm hearing you say that Hebraic a Hebraic way of thinking has had a lot more influence on how Westerners think. It's it's not nearly as Greek and Hellenistic as right. people assume. Is that is that? Yeah, everything from ethics to math to science um, to p- politics, and again, that's. What was surprising to me in doing the research for this book, which I did back at St. Andrews and the second time I was there, that was actually, I'm, I, I'll be honest, I shy away from those kind of claims when they're like, America is a, you know, a, a biblical nation and yeah, especially yeah. The, the renewal of like Hebrew Bible love that's happened in some wing sectors of politics today. Okay. I wouldn't necessarily go along with a lot of those moves. I was kind of compelled by the non-Christians Okay. Who are saying like you're not going to find the roots of Western thought uh, in the Mediterranean? You're going to find it in Southwest Asia in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and again, these are Assyriologists and Egyptologists and classicists um, who are who are saying this seems obvious to them. Um, wow. So a lot of what I was doing is trying to figure out if what I saw was the same kinds of thing, and it wasn't necessarily always, uh, but. There were certain moves and, you know, my, my favorite phrases that pop out of that tradition from the University of Chicago is the Hebrew Bible has a certain type of critical intellectualism and skeptical mood that you just don't find in Mesopotamia or Egypt. Hmm. And, and, you, and you only find it really later in Greece and Rome, but it has it has its other encumbrances in that system as well. So um, there is like a free rationalist thinking project going on in the Hebrew Bible that just simply doesn't exist in the omenology of, of Mesopotamia or the mystery religions of Egypt. Can you give us a, some concrete examples of either that or maybe your larger yeah. argument that you're... And by the way, everything I'm saying is not my argument. Uh, this is all, again, these are all these people from, from mid-20th century, but I'm, I work in a work group of ancient Near Eastern scholars, uh, and we've been in Denmark and Germany, but like this, this is not controversial. Again, these are not confessional people. These are just people who work on the, on text and, and places. Um, but if you think of something like um, the scientism that Francesca Rockford from Berkeley, she, that she traces in Mesopotamian omenology, she's like, look, you may think this omenology where it's like, if a black cat crosses your path and the back door of your, of your house is over two meters tall or whatever they would measure it in two cubits tall, three cubits tall. Uh, and it's a sunny day on the solstice, then death is coming your way, right? I mean, those are those are very logical statements. Those are rigorously logical. It's modus ponens and modus tollens at work there. Um, and this is what she notes is this omenology that we might think is like crazy magic, whatever religious uh, superstition in our day. 
it actually operated according to very rigorous systems of logic. And by the way, this would be the wisdom literature that Daniel mm-hmm. learns, uh, you know, in Daniel one and two, him, him and his companions. And she, and the, the problem actually becomes, and so she, she tries to say like, look, this is, this is evidence of people rationalizing the universe, looking at the physical universe and trying to rationalize what's going on and how things are connected to each other, how, how this causes that causal, causal networks, right? The problem with omenology is a kind of like with your local meteorologist, you don't, nobody follows up when, like when the omens don't actually work, nobody seems to take note of it, which is true today, right? Like who knows if I ask you how how accurate is your local meteorologist? Well, nobody knows because nobody goes back and checks and sees whether what she said about last Thursday actually was exactly how last Thursday turned out, right? And so, and, and there's this question like, how could they be? And when the Greeks came into Mesopotamia, they were so impressed with their massive learning and their mm-hmm. understand, you know, the their understanding of the um, the celestial bodies and the movement of celestial bodies, um, and they, but they couldn't figure out. Um, how they understood so much and yet they couldn't figure out that their omens don't come true or their omens don't mm. work. Right. Uh, and you see that exact critique in, uh, in both, you could even say in Genesis, you see it, um, with, uh, with, uh, Abraham kind of usurping that entire intellectual system of omenology, uh, by saying like, yeah, we're not, we're not doing omens. God actually revealed to you what's going to happen. I'm, all I'm going to do is help you understand what he's already revealed to you. The same logic gets applied with uh, Daniel. He brings them into history, place, time, situates uh, outside of the omenology system and says, and this is how it's going to happen. And thus it happened. And, and notice how careful the text in Genesis and Daniel is to show it happens exactly according to what uh, he says. Right. So um, we, you, you know, there's one way you, you can see that as God establishing this person in that time as a unique person acting on his behalf, on behalf of the Israelites and later the Jewish people, that's all true. But you have to also understand that is, that is completely going into an, an entire intellectual system that is, uh, that is thick and rigorous and completely disrupting the whole system, uh, and showing that it actually doesn't follow certain rules of history and logic that that we would now take for granted. So it makes sense to us when the Hebrew Bible says, somebody says something on behalf of God and it comes true, and everybody believes because they saw that come true, like the mm-hmm. signs that Moses brings to the people. We take that for granted that, of course, Moses shows them the signs, the signs did what he said they were going to do, and they came mm-hmm. true. Of course, that's a good reason for believing Moses. Well, that ne- that wouldn't necessarily be how a Mesopotamian, depending on which kingdom you're in at the time, would think about those signs, right? So the reason we think it's true is because we've already appropriated that basically Hebrew view of history, space, time, intellectualism, logic, et cetera. We've we've mapped them together the same way that they did. God, there's I, I'm trying to. I'm sorry, I know my mind is. I I don't. I I've got friends that think on a more philosophical level naturally, and man, when we're talking, I feel like. Sometimes it's like two ships passing the night. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm struggling. I'm struggling here. I, well, I, I, I think <laughs> you can see the same thing with Paul too, right? So if I, I'll take yeah. it in the New Testament. Right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in Acts 17, which is funny, for the longest time, I thought that was just the most rigorous, large logical argument, you know. And then when I was working on this book, I'm, I'm going through it again for the how many times I've been through that passage. I'm like, wait, this this is not an argument. This doesn't even make any sense, right? He's He's entering their system. He's showing, hey, look, I understand how your system works. I understand what you're concerned about, what you think is philosophically primary and what what you need to understand. But he cinches that argument 
by saying, uh, God has overlooked your ignorance and he's appointed a man who you've never heard of. Uh, and, and he's going to come judge you, which you don't believe in any kind of divine judgment anyway. <laughs> uh, and he's going to, and he's given evidence of that by something you've never heard of either. This historical event that you didn't, you've never heard of, and you wouldn't believe it if you had heard of if heard of resurrection, right? That's not a convincing argument to any Athenian that doesn't matter whether they're Stoic, Epicurean, or, or otherwise. So he's disrupting that system, but he's disrupting it by using what we consider like in the very broadest form, historical or scientific evidence, right? Like there's, there was an experiment that was run and if it didn't, you know, if he wasn't raised, then we should be the most pity of all people, right? You just can't take for granted that that general line of reasoning is the way all ancient people thought about reasoning about the nature of the cosmos. We take it for granted because our scientific system today that we all learn in junior high or high school takes the Hebrew view of the world, right? We've, we've gone down that path. Even the, enla- the Enlightenment in many ways takes for granted the Hebrew intellectual world in order, and then, you know, it takes yeah. it in all kinds of wonky ways. But when you say Hebrew view of the world, what, what, what specifically are you referring to there as opposed to yeah, the other um, options? So that the world is real, that it is, okay. uh, that it is law-like. I mean, it's, you, you know, you have to tell people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, when you say, you know, I believe in the laws of physics and the laws of gravity, you have to say like, you realize that's a divine metaphor, right? That's a theologically loaded metaphor. Mm-hmm. It, it assumes a lawgiver and a regulator according to that lawgiver who is divine and holds things. It's, you know, Colossians 1, he holds all things together mm-hmm. um, and he created all things. So, um, that kind of basic view that there's a God who created, you know, the ones we've all heard, he created, he created creation um, by f- whipping it into shape, not by war, battle, death, and victory, um, but by his, wh- whatever you want to call it, his will, uh, his, mm-hmm. his movement in the world, his spirit, his breath, and that you can therefore know things because things act according to his, the way he regulates the world. Um, like even that simple move is you're already outside of most systems of, of thought in the ancient world. Um, Mm. or at least you're on the, you're on the border of them in some way. So that's a big one. How do you know the world around you and how do you know it truly? And this gets into like, even what the word true means in the Hebrew, which is slightly different than the way we often use the term true and false or the, those, uh, binaries. And I think also I would say, um, a kind of historical view that the world begins in a certain place and is headed in a certain direction, which that's not unique to the Hebrews, right? I mean, you you have various people who will have this kind of um, zenith point of history down the line or Mm -hmm. starting point uh, from which everything comes. Uh, But that you have a God along the way who's encountering the world. uh, You know, I love that line from Daniel where he's like, the the enchanters say, he's like, they're right. no man can know these things, but there is a God in heaven, right? Because they say there's only the gods know these things and they don't reveal them to men, right? And he's like, no, there is a God in heaven, but he's revealed it to you. That blood-brain barrier between the heavens and the earth, um, that you have a God and he does that because he's come down as the lawgiver and instructed people directly. If you Again, you go into the Mesopotamian or Egyptian world, the gods control a lot of things in the world by accident, by hmm. sex, by drunkenness, by anger by um, care and wisdom. Um, But humans have no idea why they do the things they do. Uh, You don't know why the gods are mad at you, right? The the poetic laments from Egypt and from Mesopotamia where you have the man saying, I don't know what, you know, like Jobian, I don't know why God has done any of this to me. Um, And the only result is you can go give sacrifices to all of them just to cover your bases. 
Uh, contrast that with the the Torah, where you have a God who comes down and personally instructs you. Yeah. And in words, in terms, in in, in analogies that you can understand that from your lived experience, and then in your presumably in their language, their local language, and is okay with them confirming it by saying, we will do all of these things. Like almost seemingly seeks the consent of the people, if you will, you know, um, not in any kind of Lockean American consent of the people way. Yeah. Like that, you know, you, you've just broken every rule in the ancient Near East of God-human interaction, right? Um, and, uh, and that if you want to think about like the sons of Korah in Numbers 16 is a good example because, you know, Okay, God opens up the earth and swallows a bunch of people, um, but you have to say, well, why did He do that, right? Yeah, it was an experiment where, like, these people brought a new view of holiness. They're like, we don't need these curtains, we don't need this tabernacle. Of course, these were the priests who serviced the holy of holies. They were Kohathites, so they were specifically the ones who serviced the inner, the yeah. inner room of the of the. And they're saying, hey, we don't need anything. They're like the Reagan, you know, tear down this wall kind of. Uh, they they supposed this, right? And Moses, all Moses does, him and Yahweh, they say, like, look, we're going to lay it out tomorrow. You go stand over there, and whatever happens in history will answer the question as to whether your view, uh, your interpretation of what's going on here is right or wrong, of holiness, right? That is not playing within the world of omenology, right? That's actually playing within the world of a God who instructs and takes time to intervene physically in history in a hi historically voracious event that people can then recount and say this, this time that this happened. Um, uh, that's just a very different, like I, on every front, that's a very different view than everybody else in the ancient Near East. And even significantly different from the Greco-Roman tradition that emerges later. What's the cause of the difference? Because I think, you know, at least in, in the field of biblical studies, we're often looking for similarities, parallels, right, you right. know, um, you look at, the Code of Hammurabi and see parallels and differences, but I mean, you, I feel like you, the, the similarities help you expose the differences too. Um, and it's really interesting to look at Hammurabi's code and see very similar, a lot of similarities, but then right. once you connect those Radical dots, then you see the differences of, yeah. wow, this, the law, the law code that Moses delivered, um, you know, we look at it from our modern lenses and see a lot of, you know, misogyny and inequality and all these things. Well, compared to Hammurabi, and you see a lot more. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and honestly, like, wow, this like, is more of a progressive kind of document than we maybe first realized. Even compared to itself, if you actually take the view that, that the laws are in general are always looking to protect the most vulnerable in the community, you can read the same law that looks misogynistic. Uh, and all of a sudden, see like, oh no, this is meant to protect uh, women in their in their vulnerabilities and weakness, right? Can you give us an example? Because that's a provocative statement, and I I, I know like Sandy Richter and yeah, Katie, yeah, yeah. Katie she, McCoy she and others have done, us. yeah, yeah. Um, um, well, I think you know, I mean, the one that I love is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? Which is a great example because it's called lex talionis, you know, the law of retribution. Um, and I have to point out in, you know, in all three instances of, of that, uh, that principle in the Torah and, uh, Exodus, uh, Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy, never does it actually demand, you know, it states the principle, but then it puts it in a concrete situation. The concrete situations never actually demand an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth mm. or direct retribution. So you're instantly in a world where we're saying like, you need to be careful how you read, uh, read this law. Right. So you have this principle eye for an eye tooth for tooth which is found in Hammurabi 
which is a class is like how the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is applied in Hammurabi. And, and, and the laws of Eshnuna has something similar to it. The way it's applied is by class. So if you're an upper class citizen, the worst thing that's ever, ever going to happen to you is you're going to have to pay a fine for, for knocking out the eye of a, of a freeman or a slave, right? If you're a, 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 a wilu. But if you're a, a free person or a slave, um, you know, you're going to get treated worse depending if you strike up, right? Uh, and then you get to Exodus 21. I'll just stick with Exodus 21 because it's the first iteration. Each, each iteration does something slightly different within its own context. But the first iteration, um, it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And then it gives two concrete examples. And we know there are two concrete examples related to eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, because it's if you hit somebody's eye and if you hit somebody's tooth, you're like, okay, well, they're, <laughs> they're trying to help us not miss this one, right? Go figure, yeah. But I, I mean, honestly, I can't tell you how many times I missed it. And, and you know, if you ask people like, okay, it says eye for an eye, tooth for tooth in, in, in the code in Exodus 21, what does it say right after that, right? Like, what's the examples? Most people don't know, right? It says, if you strike the eye of your slave, uh, then you must release your slave. If you strike the tooth of your slave, male or female, for both of them, if you strike the tooth of your slave, you must release your slave. So the concrete instance, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, which is a classist principle in, yeah. uh, in sorry, in Hammurabi, and 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 purely retributional. Uh, when it's a high class person striking, uh, sorry, when it's a low class person striking a high class person, it's like you take out their eye, you can have them whipped, um, and fines paid, right? Here, it's, no, if you're the one who has power over somebody else and you even touch their tooth, you lose all of the, the, the economic value of their work for you, right? And if you go through all of that section of Exodus 20, 20, 21, 22, there's a lot of concern for losing the economic value of somebody who's endangered themselves to you, right? So real quick, the, the, so the eye for eye, tooth for tooth principle is basically, a, in its own context, would be a blatant leveling of social classism. Is that don't don't abuse any kind of socially structured power, wow. right? And if you do, you lose. You lose a, a fairly big fine. I mean, depending on where you are in the years of release and whether people are actually practicing the years of release or not. But yeah, you could you could potentially lose six weeks worth or six years worth of work that you've already basically paid for, right? Or that you've given out some money on. And then in Deuteronomy later, you have to send out you have to send out slaves wealthy, you know, wealthier than they came in, right? Yeah. So that's that's something that you know on the surface if you if you read it without paying any attention to any of the details it feels like a very you know biblical law meant to uh, bring the hammer down and if anybody does anything to me they're going to get theirs and it's actually a warning to people in power um so it doesn't surprise me that when Jesus in, in the sermon on the mount is trying to show his chops and say like look I I understand what you've been told but I'm telling you this is what's going on in the Torah that's exactly the axes upon which he interprets eye for an eye. You've heard eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but he goes into a list of uh, issues of vulnerability. And, and he basically flips it on its head and he says, like, go ahead and be vulnerable. Be the slave who gets beat. Uh, if somebody asks you to go another mile, um, you know, it's, it doesn't surprise me that he says if somebody strikes you in the face, you know, near the eye or the tooth, oh, right? Yeah. And, and I assume also there that the, it's all principle of extension. So, you know, it's, it's not saying, well, therefore you should beat your slaves in the ribs or the back or something that if you, if you break anything on them, if you hurt anything on them, right, you lose their service. So something that seems very brutish um, in context of the ancient Near Eastern code that it's clearly riffing off of. And I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't think it's any mistake to connect this to Hammurabi 
it, whether it's actually knows of Hammurabi, the actual code itself, it knows of the law, the legal right. precedence of Hammurabi. Um, it's using that to signal up to you, hey, we're doing something very different here. And it's actually, surprise, surprise, the vulnerable that we're worried about and, mm-hmm. and you when you come into power. And of course, if you follow the logic of Hebrew enslavement there, any Hebrew could fall into poverty and become enslaved, right? It wasn't something that happens to just the poor and then disenfranchised. It could happen to anybody. You could have a crop failure and have to go to your your brother and say, hey, I need to work for you for a year or two so that we can eat this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a very different, um, I think it's just, just in the nitty gritty of what the law is doing, there's some very different uh, procurements there. Um, because it's not working along the legal frameworks that Greeks and Romans later developed. It's not trying to lay out rules that you follow or don't follow. Yeah. It's laying out principles and then how can you live these. And then it's a field that it sets up for you. It sets up fences that, that guide you from going too far. But then there's a lot of improvisation on the inside of that. And that's and that's why I would say the Torah is a wisdom tradition, right? Because it actually demands for you to think through like the mm-hmm. proliferating effects of small – like. How do you play out the do not strike your your slave? You could go the, the Greco-Roman and sometimes the, I mean, there is a Jewish tradition that plays out the route that would say, well, no, that's why you have to strike your slave in the, you know, but, you know, because lest you hurt his tooth or his eye or whatever, right? That was yeah. one way to go. With it. But I think it's actually demanding for you, therefore, to then start th- proliferating that principle yeah. where else it might apply. friends, it's Chris Sprinkle here. Preston and I are always looking for ways to come alongside and help empower vulnerable people. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about Noonday Collection. I learned about Noonday Collection several months ago and have been so impressed by its heart and mission behind it. It partners with artisans in 15 different countries by creating dignified jobs and employment opportunities for people in vulnerable communities. And because of their fair wages and their dignified work, women are leaving prostitution and children are receiving an education and families are even staying together. Our friend Jessica Honiger, she started Noonday Collection over 13 years ago because she wanted to help empower women around the globe to find a way for sustainable living and freedom. She has gone around the world looking for unrecognized, talented artisans and created a business partnership with them. So if you're looking for high quality jewelry, clothing and accessories, and you care about empowering vulnerable women, come shop with Noonday Collection. All the products are high quality, handcrafted, and honestly, they are incredibly beautiful. If you're needing an accessory for yourself or you need a gift for a friend, consider purchasing it at Noonday. By doing so, you are making a difference in the world's most vulnerable communities. Go to chrissprinkle.noondaycollection.com. That is C-H-R-I-S sprinkle.noondaycollection.com. If Theology Nara has blessed you or challenged you or encouraged you on some level, then I would like to invite you to consider supporting the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to various kinds of premium content like monthly Q&A podcasts, the ability to ask me questions and dialogue with other Patreon supporters. Uh, Gold level supporters are able to participate in monthly Zoom chats where we talk about uh, pretty much everything. Those chats can get pretty wild sometimes and I absolutely love it. So join the uh, Theology and Rock community by signing up at patreon.com forward slash Theology and Rock. First of all, you mentioned in passing Josh Burnham's book, uh, Created Equal. I recently read that. 
I have it right here, I think. Um, it's a great book. It's Josh, amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. do you know him? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a fellow from the Center for Hebraic Thought. Really? Oh, you got to – I, I would love to have him on the – I can't find the yeah. book right now. But I, oh, he's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it, it, um, it was – I mean, first of all, he's brilliant. And it really – it's a scholarly work, but very clear and understandable. And He's a rabbi as well, so he knows he how knows to like communicate. Yeah, yeah he's, but he is. He's brilliant. He's a scholar, yeah. and, he, and he knows how to – clarify ideas but he he show, he pointed out stuff that i and i look i've been I, my phd is in new testament but i did i did a lot of like old testament stuff taught old testament That's what survey I thought, for, yeah 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 so i i, I mean my dissertation was on leviticus 18 5b <laughs> so um yeah and traced that through early judaism but i um so i feel like i've got a, a decent handle on the old testament um but man he was bringing up stuff like oh my word yeah. just how so many things were were aimed at leveling classism in the Old Testament, you know, yeah. and um, and it's it really was fascinating. Subtle things, that, subtle yeah. things like the the, the, the 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 he he has a whole section on um on the method of writing or something. I forget exactly what it was. It was something I never would have thought about. And then after reading yeah. this section, I was like, blew my mind. But um, yeah. can you give us an? I, it's so helpful to hear you unpack kind of a concrete example, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. What, what's another one that stands out where maybe modern readers might take it as, wow, this is really angry and offensive and classist and misogynistic, yeah. whatever that is actually what much more leveling than we maybe appreciate. I mean, and, and of course, everything that I'm saying, like I can hear other people going, well, no, not really. You know, you're, or you're reading that really generously or whatever. But, but the reason I read it in that sense towards the vulnerable is because there's so many spots in the Hebrew Bible where God threatens death of Israel, death. Mm. And like, you know, I will make you, your children orphans and your wives husbandless, right? If you don't look out for the vulnerable. So like, there's very, this very strong repetitive drumbeat that you well know well, not just in Leviticus, but other places of looking out and making sure that you don't uh, treat people in the in these various ways, and especially exploiting people at the moment of their vulnerability seems to be the worst thing that you can do, right? So I think there actually is like thematic precedence and and like philosophical precedence for this. But I would go to like Numbers five, the uh, the woman who who is, her husband suspects adultery, and and now part of this is a literary reason that it, it's a long ritual in Numbers five, um, where you you know if a man if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, he, you know, it re but what's interesting about that is people will read that as like, Oh, this is a, this is shaming the woman. It's a trial by water. Like that you see in yeah. Ishnun and, 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 uh, Hammurabi, um, which it is uh, a trial by water, but, but again, a very different, they're not throwing her in a river and drowning her. Right. Uh, it's, I'd say because there's this parallel language throughout from the beginning to the end, the very closing line is this is the, the, the law in the case where the man suspects adultery uh, or where the woman has actually committed adultery. And so throughout it's, he could be wrong, right? So you could read this as this really unfair shaming uh, ceremony. Uh, I, I think, you know, if you think phenomenologically live daily life, Structurally speaking, husbands are going to have a little bit more power as to how certain things happen in, in the household. If, if we take Bedouins as any kind of model or Canaanites as any kind of model for what households might look like. And it's, again, I don't think it's patriarchy is the right term. Maybe something more like Cynthia Shafee or Elliot's uh, heterarchy. It's mixed power relations. Can you, wait, it, you just open up a can there. Can you, can you unpack uh, that? Well, it's, this is Carol Myers too out of Duke. Um, 
who uh, we we did this. We put together this book called the uh, I forget what it's called, the Biblical World of Gender or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> the yeah, daily, I saw that, yeah. yeah. And Carol Myers, her book Rediscovering Eve. You know, she's just like this. A, who can read the book of Genesis and say this is a patriarchy, right? Like women are calling almost all the shots, right or wrong. Like they're, sometimes it's, it's for ill, right? It's not necessarily a good thing. And men are listening to them, right? Uh, and, it, and that creates like 80% of the drama of the book of, of Genesis, right? So in what world, from the, biblical, from the biblical depiction of what's going on, in what world is this a patriarchy, Right. Uh, so you can say there is some social structure power. Uh, uh, Laban is handing over his daughter and switching them out. Uh, there are some structural elements, but Carol Myers kind of uses anthropological research. Since Cynthia Shaper Elliott does as well, and kind of augments this and says, "Okay, what does this actually look like in the daily life of these people?" Well, actually, so bread making is one example. Um, Women, bread making is a communal activity. The belief is in Canaanite villages and Israelite villages in kind. Um, most of the things that you, and this, is, this would actually be true in my marriage today. I have to make all kinds of decisions about things, but my wife knows a lot more about certain people and situations than I do. And I need her understanding, even though I'm the one who's ultimately going to have to make a certain decision for something. Uh, again, not because of structural power, but just because for some reason the, it's on me or whatever, right? Um, and so Carol Myers shows very carefully that bread making, which looks like menial labor handed out to the women, actually is the thing that gives them the political power in the village uh, because they're the ones who act, they're the only ones who actually know what's going on. And so to call that patriarchy basically flattens it out and misunderstands the entire situation. Um, mm. But that there are there are exchanges of knowledge and power at various degrees and levels in various relationships uh, which that's where the heterarchy uh, term comes in, seems to more accurately capture what's going on and then forces you to think about, okay, who has what power in which situations? Would so, it be accurate? Yeah. I've often used the phrase, I don't know, often, I think maybe a couple of times, but like, like that God is meeting Israel that is living in a patriarchal society, but on many levels is actually critiquing some of the internal workings of patriarchy like it's it's still within the shell of patriarchy like you said yeah. labor giving away his daughter you, you do have the kind of you do have some kind of patriarchal yeah shell i guess you know but there's yeah. uh, there's just, just as many critiques as there are or maybe more critiques as there are affirmations of the fundamentals driving that kind of system or is that yeah, or am i, I not I going far critique, enough i mean no I, I think that critique goes all the way into through the entire hebrew bible into the new testament i mean i have this open question in my mind like if these texts are written by men, why would they ever describe yeah. themselves this way? Why would they make yeah. women look so glowingly wise Yeah, and like the cool headed? Why would they make men the irrational, hot headed people who make everything worse for everybody around them? And on the whole, you know, if you ask biblical scholars, who comes out looking better on the whole in the Bible, women or men? Like it's by yeah. far women. Right. And again, so you can say that's a patriarchal system of writing. But there's all kinds of weird um, usurpations of normal gender expectations and, and just the description, like, why would the disciples ever describe the women so glowingly in the Gospels and themselves as the biggest doofuses of all time who never really <laughs> understood what Jesus was talking about or doing? Um, it's just a weird, like, like, it's just a, like, it's just an odd, like, literary phenomenon, if you want to put it in, like, just, you know, completely neutral terms. Exodus 1 um, through 5. 
yeah, yeah. I mean, all the girls are women. (laughs) Why would you start with a nation? And you're like, where are the men standing up to do, you know, like, like, where were the the heroic men who were standing up to power? You know, it was like, it was woman, 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 even for Moses, right? His own life was saved by a foreign woman who seemed to understand the importance of circumcision uh, and the the economy of God's plans for Abraham. How do we get on this? (laughs) Well, I, I, I was hierarchy. just uh, hierarchy, um, right? yeah, heter- so hierarchy, like dual or male female rule yeah, together, it, mixed, but it, mixed relations, yeah. And and in that book, I had I got stuck writing the essay like about the bad women in the Bible because you know we nobody could nobody had time or whatever. So I was like, we got to put a chapter in there about the evil women in the Bible, right? And Jezebel's and it was so kind of. Well, I mean, it was kind of surprising when you walk through the whole thing. You know, women are raping men, they're killing men, they're conniving situations to murder people. Like they're doing, they're Ruin, doing all the worst. Women things. raping men. Well, I mean, or if you think David is is raping Bathsheba, which a lot of people do. Um, then you have to say Lot's daughters roofied him and sexually assaulted him. Um, like you can't have Ammon and Moab unless there's a lot of wine, strong wine involved. Uh-huh. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I hesitate at using kind of our modern sexual assault terms in these texts. Cause it's, it's okay. not always clear how they apply or where they apply correctly. But yeah, if, if you're, if you're getting your dad drunk in order to have sex with them and to the getting him drunk to where he doesn't know he had sex with you, I think today we would call that rape. Um, That's going to be, that's, I'm going to get some emails about that. I'll send them your way. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I, I, just, I would just say what, what you see is a picture that women are just as bad as men, right? Okay. Um, Jezebel, who, who will get worthless men to two witnesses to lie, to throw Nabot out a window yeah. in order to be eaten by dogs. Like, like anything men will do, women will do as well, right? What do you do um, with uh, Tamar in Genesis 38? I always took her as why or crafty and sinister but there's another view that she's well it's the pronouncement at the end you're more righteous than i now that comes from the mouth of judah but is she a good character like i mean it it, there's there's some good jewish commentary on this i can't remember off the top of my head but i remember thinking like okay that's a nice way around it but i mean a guy you know a woman who says i'm gonna dress up like a prostitute on the way to the sheep shearing field, because I know that my father-in-law likes to have sex with property. I mean, she doesn't say that, but the implication is because I right. know he'll buy into it. Um, and then that guy saying you're more, uh, and, and this is also the guy who withheld unto death uh, his own children uh, from her. So we and, can't really trust um, his moral pronouncement very well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a morally, let's just say complicated situation. So when he, when he says she's more righteous than I, I think we can all agree. Yes. I mean, there's also like some shooting yourself in the foot, right? Like I mean, comparatively, like, you know, to live li- life long in the land, you have to have generations and he's not even participating in the very things that create generations, right? He's not allowing his children to create generations for, for his one son and he's lost too, but it's out of fear for the, for the last one. I mean, it's, you know, there's lots of echoes of the Akedah going on of, uh, Abraham, anti-Akedah, you know, the Abraham and Isaac situation. So, yeah, so women and men are equally participating in all kinds of messed up stuff, right? Um, but women do uh, often, women are also often, especially by the time you get to Judges and First and Second Samuel, mm-hmm. um, women are the ones, I mean, you get to the end of uh, Second Samuel and 
we don't even know these people's names. They're just called the wise woman from Tekoa, the wise woman from Avil, who come in and settle down the men who are acting emotional and irrational and to keep them from doing harm to other people and themselves, right? Um, so I, I think I think the biblical literature is actually giving a lot more earned credit to women than we think it is. But you, but I am also talking about you got to read across the whole thing and get kind of like the big, yeah. the big story on men and women. Yeah. The particular is it can get, you know, it, there can be ugly moments in there as well. I think I did remember Josh actually, cause he didn't touch the women question. I think I remember in his book, him saying inequality. Yes. That aside from the clear kind of inequality between men and women, all these other things are being challenged, you know, but you would, would you even if I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, um, but he seemed to still say no. There is a lot of inequality between men and women um, in the Old Testament. Would you? Do you know if that's what he would say? And would you disagree with that? Or I mean, um, I don't know if inequality would be the term. I think you know he would talk about like gender roles, maybe. Okay. Um, men still having more he, power over women. Well, certainly that men have functional power. I mean, I, okay. this. I'm not, I'm not pumping it, but this, this book I worked on on Darwinism, you know, I worked on scarcity, sex and fit to environment. And so you had to deal with all of these, you know, I was reading all this evolutionary biology on sex and rape. And it turns out there's a, there's a very common view amongst evolutionary biologists that, you know, most hominid generation is created by rape. Um, because hominids are unique in that the males, most animals, the males are smaller than the females, right? But hominids are, not unique, but they're one of the few categories where the males are much larger than the females, which creates the unique possibility for huh. uh, what they call forced copulation, um, but it, what we would probably call rape today. Uh, so that so that human evolution is actually, I mean, it's kind of like a given in the water of evolutionary biology that human evolution is actually a history of rape. And this became a big question amongst anthropologists. Is, is this the right way to talk about this? And what are the implications if you have evolutionary encoded rape in men, uh, then how do you hold them responsible for those acts when, when they're in an evolutionary oh, um, gosh. They call it lapse or whatever, you know, where the feature is no longer needed to do the thing that, or was the feature ever needed? You know, like it gets hairy really quickly. But what, what kind of struck me is that in the evolutionary conversations, what I appreciated was there was no mincing words about the size of males actually dictates a lot of what happens um, in prehistory. Um, and you just can't get around that. Um, and the biology of females dictates a lot of what happens in reproductive history. So, um, and you just can't get around that. Is, is part of your, I know we're jumping around, but this is, you keep, yeah. <laughs> you, every, no, every time we turn a corner, it's yeah, like should, there's a shiny object. I'm like, Ooh, let's go after that. So is part of your, your project there pointing out some of the moral, let's just say <laughs> complexity slash problems with the evolutionary biological framework or, no, uh, that, that project is, it's again, it's another example of my larger trajectory, which is to show there is an intellectual world of the Bible that, and so if you ask like, what would the biblical authors think of natural selection? Well, there's an actual an answer to that, right? Cause they, you know, starting in Genesis and carrying all the way through, they have a very thick discussion about scarcity of resources that's really, and how it's related to violence. Like that's a, mm. that's a direct conversation that comes up in Genesis three and four uh, and gets carried all the way through. Um, fit to environment, what, what makes humans fit to certain environments and not, and then genetic propagation, right? Like genealogical propagation. Uh, it just so happens that, um, 
the way that Darwin conceives of uh, genetic propagation, like that model that he uses, the tree and the, the pruning off, the only other model of that kind of genealogy in history is in the Hebrew Bible. Oh, wow. Like Greeks did not make those kind of, of genealogical models. Egyptians did not make those kinds of genealogical models. That's a uniquely Hebrew genealogical model. I'm not saying like Darwin stole everything from the Hebrew Bible. I'm just saying he is actually something that you can put in conversation with the intellectual world of, of natural selection. The biblical authors have a view of natural selection. I would say they have a different view of what counts as natural, uh, but they definitely think there's something to this. Um, and then questioning where's, where is the overlap and then where are the points of conflict and finding kind of uh, different and more profound points of conflict than the general evolution versus creation debate, which I find to be mostly boring, <laughs> boring yeah. and unhelpful. <laughs> in, in, what, in what way? The deeper conflict or the boring and unhelpful? Uh, uh, you could, both. Uh, you could start which, whether, yeah. whichever one you want. Yeah. And maybe, maybe explain on a one-on-one level exactly what the issue is. Yeah, I think the if you read most creation and science books they ascend, they go there's a very standard theme and variation which is what do we do with genesis 1 through 11 or genesis 1 through 3 uh, do we read it literally woodenly which i know you have talked a lot about on this podcast right mm-hmm. what what yeah. that could possibly mean or should we read it historically um and i say like look you know you the, those are all interesting things. Everybody's got a mythology. Everybody's got origin stories. Evolutionary biologists all tell origin stories. They also have mythologies that mm-hmm. we put technically under a story that they don't believe is actually, you know, one for one historically perfectly true, but it's a good enough story to describe why things are the way they are now, right? If we take for granted that Genesis 1 through 11 is at least that, it's a good enough story that the biblical authors believe explains enough about why things are the way they are now. So what you see in these debates is often people just argue about how to read those texts, and then they either hyper-literalize them to where they have a very specific way of reading them. They say, if you don't read them this way, you're not reading the Bible correctly, and you're ditching all of that. Or they just say, history doesn't really start till Genesis 12, and all that other stuff is just kind of like poetic mythology. So we... So we're going to take our origin story of like evolutionary biology and, you know, what, and again, you have to say, well, which one, because there's only like 20 different versions of evolutionary biological evolution. Right. Um, And I'm going to take this version two a of the evolutionary biological story, sit it back over here and then say, and that created a bunch of people that eventually led up to Abraham and okay, now we're in Abraham. Now we'll go forward Hmm. in history. Right. And it's different version. I mean, and and again, it's not, it's unfair to say that's all that's going on in that debate, but a lot of it is variations on that basic. So it's, it's too neatly dividing myth from history and these different theories of cosmology and creation. Um, Yeah. And and then you end up saying, well, no, the Genesis one through 11 is, it's a functional story. And since it's just functional, it's not trying to do all this other stuff. And, um, I believe it's it's probably doing functional storytelling and mm-hmm. lots of and genealogical storytelling and lots of other things, but the the problem is most you know it, it, what it's doing is not taking seriously that okay Darwin comes up with this idea of natural selection. I think my original proposal for the d- book title was what Scripture and Darwin both noticed, right? Mm. That they're actually noticing and telling you something about the nature of the world and why it is the way it why it is nature, red and tooth and claw, which that's even a controversial view in evolutionary science today. Um, but they, they both are trying to tell a story about how natural selection works. 
Um, but I don't, I've never read anybody who actually takes seriously the biblical view of natural selection and says like, oh, they have a view that actually corresponds quite nicely. And I, you know, in researching it, and I love it, if anybody knows in your audience uh, of something, I would love to hear about it. But, you know, I, I looked pretty broadly for anybody else in antiquity who was telling any kind of story that sewed together scarcity with violence, mm. genetic propagation, and, and fit to environment uh, the way that, that the biblical authors do. Uh, I couldn't find anybody who's doing anything like it until Darwin, really, um, Wallace and Darwin. So kind of apples to apples comparison, right? Like, let's, let's do apples to apples, see what they would say about these things that Darwin thinks he's discovered. I think the more profound conflict is a metaphysical one. They believe the universe used to be one way, it's now a different way, and it will be one day another way, right? That okay. makes sense. Well, I'm curious, and this, yeah, we're now looking into a closet of a door that we opened up to a bedroom. <laughs> but um, I, I, so I have not, I've barely dabbled in this discussion. Um, so I, Me too. you know, um, and I have heard from people who have spent a lot of time in it that um, it is now through genetic research and everything been more or less proven. And I always, right there, I always get nervous, like, mm, heard that before. As well, you should. Uh, okay. Um, proven I, I that. I've philosophy of science yeah. long enough to know that that's not a true <laughs> statement. Um, that genetically, it's impossible that um, all humanity came from one human pair. It, it had to have come from at least maybe a hundred different humans and then you know then that raises conflict with the genesis account and how do you yeah. reconcile that and trumper longman and others problem. have you know is that true like what what, what is well, they, is there a consensus they, on they had, the origins they had of to humanity? recant all of those statements really uh, because genetic science does not actually show that um and i'm i'm speaking on behalf of josh swamidas who wrote this book called the genealogical adam and eve he okay. is actually a computational biologist at washington university he's like a legit guy that yeah. He's he's a senior in his field. Let's just put it that way. He works adjacent to the genome project. Like he's yeah. Um like he's he's in it, right? He writes he writes the articles these things are based on. And he's actually called Venema, who wrote with Scott McKnight that book, uh Biologos. He's called them to the carpet and said, You you can't say these things because they're not empirically true. Wow. Um and they have, they've retracted those things. So if you go on their websites now. Uh, now I don't know the whole story. I know Josh fairly well, um, but if you go on their websites, like they have, if you go on the Internet Archive, you will see that they have changed over the last couple of years as Josh basically confronts them on the wording of some of these things. He has an interesting, um, which I don't know if I can buy it, but it's very interesting and compelling view of both evolutionary um, humanity, like hum humanity coming about by evolution. But also the special creation of, of garden, and he, through he would say through computational biology, he can confidently say, and he's run this past all of his non-Christian colleagues, and they're like, yeah, that, that, those numbers work. That all you need is one man and one woman um, intermixing with an already evolved human population. That's the trick, right? So you have to have a you have to have an already evolved human population outside the garden. You have one man and one woman from inside the garden, and he needs about 4,000 years to explain every every person's genome on the face of the earth. So just from a genealogical perspective that on some level would resonate with a certain reading of the Genesis account, you could have Adam and Eve being created single-handedly by God while 
outside the garden, there is an evolution of human species that aren't created in God's image or how do you, what well, are, so that's, that's the cake and eat it too problem, right? Okay. Um, yeah, it, he, he would say, he calls it theological humans, the ones coming from the garden. <laughs> um, and then the non-theological humans, I, he may has a different term for it, but I still think he runs into some pretty profound conflicts with what the, what scripture is doing. I think what's interesting about, he's got a website called peaceful science or something. You should have him on. You love him. He's a brilliant guy, a uh, lovely person. But um, one of the things he's really interested in is helping these science and religion organizations, like stay, stay on the tight and narrow with what they say about science and stay away from overstatements and like, okay. well, there's a bottleneck of 10,000 and it never goes below that. So you can't have, right. you know, and he's like, nah, no, actually I do the science right now. That's not true. Uh, oh. According to what we understand. Um, and so he's, he's just been, that's like been one of his crusades is to keep everybody on the street. He, he read my manuscript and a lot, a lot of red inquiries quit saying that, like, that's not how we talk. <laughs> Don't describe us that way. So he saved me from a lot of errors as well. Wasn't there a documentary that came out, The Real Adam and Eve? Is that part of, I think it was a secular, it wasn't like a Christian thing. I think it was, but it sounds similar. To I that. have to say it's, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. I, I didn't see I, it. So I don't, I, I, I've waded into this world enough and I read, you know, enough of the books where I'm like, I don't want to live in this debate. <laughs> uh, I do want to, uh, I do think there's a unique contribution, contribution listening to the intellectual world of the, the biblical authors on these topics that it creates for this, this discussion. Uh, the editor, my editor said like, this is a disruptive book, right? It's trying to like say, Hey, you guys might be missing something here in this whole discussion. Uh, and that metaphysics, the metaphysical views of the biblical authors, all the way into the New Testament as well, um, really uh, have not been allowed a seat at the table in the discussion. Mm. Wow. So that's fascinating. And I, you know, I'm not a huge philosopher. I mean, I I enjoy some philosophy. It's helped me think through some things with clarity. But I'm not. I don't want to drag everything into a like a, a, a ontology and yeah. uh, an epistemological discussion. Uh, I do think the biblical authors, though, often want to draw us into epistemological discussions. There, I mean, the idea of who knows what and how is kind of a central question, like, you know, the garden knowledge of good and evil. And yeah. uh, even in the Exodus account, you know, Exodus 1 through 14 is sprinkled with, I'm going to do this plague so that you will know that I am Yahweh amongst uh, amongst the, the the Egyptians, right? And there's what a dozen so that you will know statements in there. So hmm. like the topic is the philosophical topics are right there ready to hand throughout scripture. Mm -hmm. You don't have to read philosophical topics into the discussion. The, the broader question that I'm trying to deal with is did the Hebrews it, across these various texts that all these texts do different things, right? And they treat sometimes the same topic in different ways, but is there some kind of uniform philosophical um, view that emerges? And this is what we call the uh, a Hebraic approach is what I've been using. Mm -hmm. Even then, I haven't convinced myself that there's just one approach. You know, I think I, yeah. I, had, I think I have some real insights that are true-ish to what's mm -hmm. going on there, but I definitely don't think I've, in any way, in one book, nailed mm -hmm. the whole system and understand everything that's going on. Um, and so I, I actually argue in that book not for a philosophy, but for a philosophical style. They definitely have mm -hmm. a way of reasoning and thinking through abstract issues that is very different than the Greeks or the Romans or the Enlightenment. Um, very similar to the way uh, African communities think through things and, and is just as philosophically rigorous and aimed at developing wisdom 
rather than um, discrete binary knowledge of something that's either black or white. It's actually um, aimed at developing wisdom um, and that we don't value. It's a philosophical system that essentially we don't value today because um, we think that it's um, mushy. It's got too much narrative. It's got poetry in it. Like how can poetry be philosophically viable? Like we can't even comprehend that, you know? So it is I mean, you I, I, mean, I say that I know you understand why Hebrew poetry could be philosophically rigorous but your average person is just going to be like, how can a psalm be philosophically rigorous? You know? Well, yeah. I, I mean, it, especially psalms that wrestle with wisdom questions, you know, uh, problem of evil. And I'm just fascinated at how much of the Old Testament in particular is written in poetry. Just the different genres, right. the need for different genres and, and literary genres, but also, you know, just the very nature of wisdom literature. Even Ecclesiastes, which most people don't, I don't think, read it correctly. Um yeah, the it's well, just they, so they the, just don't read it. <laughs> or they don't read it, or they you know read Ecclesiastes three eleven and put it on a bumper sticker or something. But um, right, right. But yeah, the the fact that that book is in the canon Ecclesiastes read correctly as this like extensive like cynical view of the world. <laughs> or how how would cynical you view of knowing too? Right, what's that? like if if a, a, a cynical view of knowing too? Because like yeah, you know the admonition: if a man claims to know, he doesn't. You know. <laughs> it's like, Wait a second. I mean, I think it has to be weighed in the balance. I think like yeah. Job, you know, it's 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 a book that gets weighed in, in the balance of wisdom literature, which we always have to say sorry to Will Kynes when we say wisdom literature. But no, I love I, I always say like we should be reading this publicly at the beginning of every semester of university. Right. Because uh, <laughs> it take has Ecclesi- some very strong warnings. Do you take Ecclesiastes as I think it was Tremper Longman in his commentary um, or there's others. It's, it's not just him, but that. You have the beginning and the end that's kind of the healthy divine perspective, but the bulk of the book is largely written from kind of a formerly religious kind of cynic or somebody who has this kind of like almost like a deistic view of of God um, to where it's yeah I've, I've, well, yeah again I don't I, since I, I mentioned his name I, I don't I think it's just public wrestling I mean it's it's earnest wrestling uh, my favorite essay on it is by. Um, a poetry scholar named Jamie Grant. He's at um, Inverness. Oh yeah, it? Jamie Grant. Highland. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Jamie, who's a wonderful human being, um, great scholar, but um, he has this article called "Frustrated Man" or something. Frustrated Man. I forget. Um, yeah. But essentially, you know, he, he his argument is that through Ecclesiastes and some of Proverbs, but kind of once you see that lens, you see it everywhere. Is that the problem, um, you know, the philosophical man is really somebody who is ultimately, fr- and I think this is where uh, Darwin's insights are so helpful, is somebody who's ultimately just frustrated with the nature of reality as he's found it. Right? Um, yeah. That death is imminent, that the the limits of our capacities to love, to help, to, um, that we have maximal capacities of desire that do so much damage to other people and minimal capacities to repair from that mm-hmm. damage we do. Wicked people uh, live long, righteous people die yeah, short. Yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful essay on like, <laughs> this is actually what it means to be a human according to Ecclesiastes. But again, weighed in the balance of the larger view. Uh, I, I use the Gloria Patri for this Darwin book of the larger metaphysical view though, is always as it was in the beginning is not right now, but evermore shall mm. be right. That's the, that's the view that I don't think Ecclesiastes loses hold of it lets a very loose grip and kind of floats it out like a balloon you know 
really far out there to where you can't see it anymore. Well, the bookends do kind of bring us back, yeah, but it lets, yeah, it, it yeah. lets us linger in the complexity yeah. and confusion for a while, you know, you're just reading. Well, and, but yeah. even the, you know, the very last sentence, the issue that judgment is coming. Yeah. Uh, and so what do you do? You do the Torah. And so, okay, you go back to the Torah. Well, what does that mean? Okay, well, I'm going to keep the rituals that are meant to shape my way, my view of reality, history, myself, and the other. Um, and the Torah is also going to say, like, don't you dare alienate the the foreigner. Don't you dare uh, oppress an orphan or a poor person, right? So, like, like that's your – yeah, that kind of fields and fences wisdom development – it just creates a really dark, big field. And then you get those little bits of fences out there, like don't cross these fences either, right? So, it's, I mean, we've all had undergrads like this, right? That you, <laughs> you, you kind of, we were all this way at some point, right? Where you, you say like, oh yeah, they don't trust anybody. There's, and, and their instant reaction is like, what? So we should not listen to anybody ever again? You're like, well, no, that's, that's not what we're going for here, right? But um I, I think Ecclesiastes trust its hearer. Hmm. I think the uh, the the final form, whatever the original forms of it look like, but the final form, it just ultimately really trusts the listener um, to to understand that to be old enough to have had enough deep miseries hmm. uh, and and been involved in creating some of those and been involved in repairing some of those to go like, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, I make my students watch Tree of Life, or I used to, I don't do it anymore, but Tree of Life, Terrence Malick's. Yeah. And I've, like you can divide the students who have had some hard experiences in life from the ones who haven't by kind of the reaction to that movie, right? So, well, Drew, I, I've taken you over an hour. Man, this has been, I'm going to go shove my head in the freezer to cool it off. I think it's on overload right now. But. I want one of your, your viewers or listeners to, what do they call it, mind map this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to look like a hairball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Even though we're arguing for some kind of linear view of the world, we definitely went in circles, which I, I, yeah. I actually enjoy these conversations sometimes more than the organized ones. Um, but yeah, where can people find your work? Uh, um, anything you want to let your the audience know to, to chase you down? No, I'm, I'm not. Uh, this your is the podcast. most version your podcast. Of me. Yeah, uh, yeah, I have podcasts. For the, I direct the Center for Hebraic Thought. We have a the Biblical Mind podcast, which I actually enjoy doing because I get to talk to people like you, which I'll have on the show here uh, in, in the next couple months. And uh, I have a narcissism website, uh, DrewJohnson.com, D-R-U. <laughs> but yeah. all it has is a graph of my books and which ones are nerdy and which ones are readable, basically. So, yeah. But other than that. Uh, on script podcast, which I'm a co-host, but that's a great podcast. I love, I, I love listening to that podcast. But we interview biblical authors uh, for that one, so that's a fun one. What's the Not difference biblical between authors. biblical mind and on script? You just do two different biblical podcasts. mind. Um, well, here here's the big difference. I don't prepare for biblical mind interviews at all. I show up, no questions, and I just get the person talking, and then it's a real conversation. Um, on script, we read the book. It's about one book. We read the book very closely. We script questions. And you, like at the end of that interview, you're going to really know what that book is doing. Oh, wow. And it's new okay. books by biblical scholars, basically. That's right. And theologians. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. So that's our popular one. That's the one like you. You're probably like famous at SBL, right? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Do, do people get <laughs> selfies with you? Uh, Has no, anybody ever gotten a <laughs> selfie with you at SBL or ETS? Uh, yeah, a few times at ETS. Yeah, okay. SBL they so might not they might not want to be yeah. seen with me, but yeah, ETS. You're ETS, ETS sometimes, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 
Yeah, I guess my podcast is kind of a blank. Sometimes I'll have an author on that I've read their book thoroughly. Other times it'll be this where I just, I want, I even sent you questions ahead of time. You're like the fourth guest out of over a thousand I've done that. Like I rarely um, send anybody any kind of prep. So um, I read them and I'm like, there's no way we're going to go through those questions. (laughs) 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 No, that's, uh, no, that's, it's, it's a, it's a good way to do it. So how can people find you? Like, (laughs) <laughs> my audience knows where to find me just good they, they I, I, i'm uniquely you. branded i guess your your name's with the spelling is a little more unique too but uh yeah, i'm weird yeah, yeah. PrestonSprinkle.com. Well, yeah. this the is web's- fun um <laughs> and uh and uh, hopefully um i don't i don't need to sell any books or anything but i i do really hope people consider preciously that jesus himself really understood how the prophets thought um that it wasn't just i mean when i take the line seriously from luke which is just a a quote of of first samuel that jesus grew in wisdom and stature before god and before men that he really was processing the thought world of the prophets and how the thought world couldn't exist in the thought world alone that how it had to actually exist in the the world of action and the community and the church which is what got him all fired up all the time um, and so I really do want us to like go back and take that very seriously. My pastor's heart is like, that's where I want people to be. Good, good. All right, Drew. Well, have a good one, man. Thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Preston. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.